Welcome to episode 236 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. For years, I struggled to take a simple step that would improve my health. I tried a lot of different hacks to make it a daily habit. I knew that it would not take more than a minute of my time, but somehow could not get into a rhythm around doing it. Of course, that would change a week or so out from my next dentist appointment. Then I would have a burst of willpower around flossing, but that willpower would wane within a couple of weeks. Paradoxically, what ended up working for me wasn't making my nighttime routine shorter, but making it longer. It all started when I made a declaration on August 22nd, 2020, that I would do 100 squats a day for 30 days. Over 200 days later, I'm still doing 100 squats every single day. I made it a habit by doing 50 squats while brushing my teeth in the morning and another 50 while brushing them at night. The concept is habit stacking, attaching a habit you want to create to a habit you already have. Well, if I'm doing 50 squats, that also now means I'm taking the full two minutes to brush my teeth, which made flossing seem like a natural next step. And then I added mouthwash as a final step. My nighttime routine used to take less than two minutes and now takes closer to 10, but now includes all these extra steps that are good for my health. I shared my 100 squats a day journey with my no more bad Zoom virtual happy hour community and it has had an amazing ripple effect. A couple of community members have started doing squats while waiting for their teapot to boil. And since they drink a lot of tea, those squats are really starting to add up. One member started out doing 10 squats with trepidation and now does a set of 30 several times a day. Your challenge for this week, is there a habit you've been trying to incorporate into your life on a daily basis? What existing habit can you stack it onto? Start with a small goal that you can easily meet. For example, floss two teeth, do two push-ups. Commit to doing this for 30 days and see if you can get a couple of friends to join you. Find a supportive community to share your progress and setbacks. Try this and let me know how it goes. Before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know that I'm running a mastermind series where eight different participants sign up for a two-hour mastermind each month. I facilitate a discussion based on questions shared by that month's participants. This is a great way to explore new topics and meet new people or deepen connections with people you've already met. Here are some guidelines on who will get the most benefit from attending this mastermind. You are an entrepreneur who has been running your own business for at least two to three years. You are willing to put time and effort into trying new business strategies. You are coachable, meaning that you will accept feedback, even feedback you disagree with, with the understanding that it is meant to help you and at least consider it before shooting it down. You are collaborative. Each group session will involve giving support as well as getting support. You will be a participant in the process. I'm looking for team players. You thrive in a dynamic group environment and you're excited to get to know other participants. If you'd like to be considered for the guest list, email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com and I'll send you additional info. If you want to join an ongoing mastermind, three-month and 10-month mastermind options will be available later this year and in 2022. Email me to let me know you want to be kept in the loop. Are you more interested in one-on-one coaching rather than a group experience? I have space for two private clients. This is a good option if you're ready to commit to doing the work and know that having the right support will get you where you want to be. Let's chat. Schedule a chat with me by starting with an email to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. No more random tactics. Instead, you'll have a clear strategic action plan and a coach to keep you on track. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is passionate about direct marketing. He believes that marketing isn't everything. It's the only thing. 
For 34 years, he has followed a specific set of direct marketing principles that helps him build Boardroom Inc. into an iconic publishing company. During that time, he was mentored by and worked with a who's who of marketing legends, and he worked side by side with the most prolific copywriters who have ever lived. That experience led to him founding Titans Marketing, a direct marketing, educational, and coaching company where he passes on these timeless fundamentals to the next generation of great direct response marketers through masterminds and masterclasses. He is the author of two books, the most recent being Over Deliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing. Please join me in welcoming Brian Kurtz. Uh, thanks, Robbie. I'm really pleased to be here. You've set this up really well. You, you prepared so well before uh, bef before, during, and hopefully after. And um, when a podcast host really shows they care about their audience um, and their guests, uh, you can't help but want to be on. So uh, Brilliant. it's a pleasure for me to be here. Excellent, Brian. Well, thank you for those kind words. Thank you for joining us from your home office in Connecticut. Let's just dig into that first question, right? You know, there's a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? It's funny. I was on a, uh, I was, a, I was in a mastermind, not my own, but someone else's mastermind recently. And people were talking about the concept of leadership and people were chiming in on that. And some people had big companies. Some people didn't have as big companies, but they were all going into sort of like, you know, mission and vision and, you know, getting the, the corporate culture set up in your organization, all that stuff. All of that's really important. However, I, 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 when I look at leadership, I, I kind of break it down to something fairly simple, which is, I call it leadership by walking around. And it's not a concept I invented. It's not a concept that hasn't been around before. But the idea that leadership, like, you know, there, there are, there's books about it where, you know, the, the CEO walks around the office all day into different people's offices to get a sense of what's going on. And that's a, that's a leadership by walking around. But then because I'm a marketer, I've also talked about marketing by walking around. And that's both on the inside of your company with your customer service reps and with your marketing people and with your copy people and your creative people, but it's also walking around on the outside with, you know, the, your audience, like you go to Walmart and see your, the people who are buying your products and see how they're behaving and what they're doing. And so the idea of just walking around, uh, being, uh, really mindful of everything around you is probably the first step to becoming a great leader because you have to be empathetic. You have to be humble. You have to really, uh, get in touch with everything around you first. Yeah, you can have all the systems you want about, you know, three-year goals and five-year goals, and we're going to have a corporate culture that's going to be perfect. And so I'll give you just one example of leadership that I learned from, because I learned it from Marty Edelston, who was the founder of Boardroom Inc., which was the company I worked for for 34 years. And Marty was not like a quintessential leader per se. He was, he was, a, uh, he was, a, he was an entrepreneur he was kind of bullheaded sometimes, and it was his idea or, or, or no ideas. But he, he went to see Peter Drucker, the management consultant. And, and he used to interview people all the time like that. But he went to Peter, and he said, you know, Peter, I'm frustrated because, like, all the meetings I have in my company are just so frustrating. I, I just don't know how to get the most out of people. He, I don't know if he was at begging to, for Peter to give him some lessons on leadership, but I, I don't think so. But I think it ended up being that. And Peter said something like, uh, you know, if you went to every meeting in your company and just asked for two ideas for, for improvement, you would, you would start leading from not from top, top down, but you'd be leading from bottom up and top down at the same time. And it was such a simple idea that Marty took it back. And this is what his leadership style was. He basically, you went into a meeting to talk about a creative approach to a, a marketing campaign. Before we started, everybody went around the room and gave two ideas. Could be anything. Could be an idea about, you know, putting the toilet paper roll, you know, have the paper come out from the top as opposed to the bottom. And you would get cash for that. You get $2 an idea. 
Um, but just to get people's minds thinking that you are part of the system. You are not just a uh, you're not just a cog. You're not just a you're not just a, a meaningless worker bee. That you're part of the company as a whole. And so, and that cre- he created this thing called iPower. Marty created this thing. All it was was two ideas per person per meeting, pay cash for them, and we accumulated just thousands and thousands of ideas, some small, some big, some some from the bottom of the company, some from the top of the company, and all ideas were welcome. And that was a, a leadership style that I learned from him that I realized that it's not it's not rocket science to talk about leadership. And there's a lot of different ways to swing it. So leadership by walking around, getting ideas from all people in the organization. Those are big things for me about what leadership means to me. What I love is that um, walking around is about knowing and feeling the culture as opposed to sitting in your office, designing what you hope the culture will be by walking around and thereby also listening the uh, feedback and suggestions from people. And I love the idea that he was paying people to do this. So there was like some buy-in right away that we're, we're going we're gonna to listen to this. And then to see those those changes actually start to take place on little things. Now you're joking about the toilet paper roll, but I'm sure there are like huge disagreements about I'll, that. I'll give, I'll, give you one, I'll give you one idea that was, and by the way, that's a brilliant distinction, Robbie. You know, the idea of rather than just sit and create the culture, let the culture come to you kind of thing. And not that you still, look. if you're a leader, you still have to make the rules. You still have to set the standards, all of that. But if you can work that in with everything that you hear, it's amazing. The, one of the stories, and Marty wrote a book called iPower. And in, in one of the best story in the book, I think, it's, it was someone on our assembly. We, we used to publish a lot of big books. Um, this was in the area. This was in the 80s and 90s when direct mail was king. And we, we shipped, you know, anywhere from a million to three million books a year. And so there was a woman who was in the uh, shipping department of shipping the books out. And she just added that on the, she just was realizing that the books, a certain book was like a little bit above the weight where it went into a different class of postage. And she said, wow, if we can get this book, like, I don't know, a little, a little lighter, we could save some money on postage on this book. Well, that idea, she put that idea into the hat, into the iPower hat. And that idea, by just then taking our books, trimming the, we didn't have to shorten the books. We didn't have to change the copy. We just, we just trimmed the size differently. I mean, there were 300, 400 page books. Trim them just a little bit, change the weight of the book. I mean, that one idea saved us $300,000 a year in postage. And this came from someone who was on the assembly line, so to speak. We didn't have a big company, but you know we had like eighty to one hundred employees. But someone who was on in in the like in the, on the field, like playing the game, you know, blocking and tackling, could figure that out. And she didn't have to figure out how to do it. She just said, "If we could just get this thing lighter." But you wouldn't have gotten that if that person wasn't a thinking about improvement, thinking about being part of a team. And so it, you can get now you can get into all the sophisticated things about leadership and about, you know, you have to make sure people are in line and everybody, you know, but all she did was thinking, she was thinking about coming up with her two ideas. And that was one of her ideas. And it was a $300,000 idea. And, and it, it just shows that, you know, the best ideas can come from anywhere. And, uh, and I do think that, um, you know, it's, it it was, and basically it's based on, Kaizen about, you know, continuous improvement. It's all based on that. Uh, Marty was a student of, of Japanese business in the eighties when they were, they were, they were cleaning our clock. So. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Kaizen because, you know, continuous improvement is something that I've been speaking a lot about in this last year. And I didn't know of the concept of Kaizen. (laughs) I, it was a thing that I was like, this is how my life has improved. This is how I've built my life. I built my business, improved myself. And, you know, it was like when people were thinking about technology and Zoom and, you know, as I shifted into that world and people were like, well, I can't be as amazing as all these people. I'm like, you're not supposed to be, don't compare yourself to that. You know, where are you today and how can you be a little bit better? And I was like 5% better. My program is actually called the 5% Advantage Program. 
And then, of so, course, I go in our research, continuous improvement, discover the whole body of work. I mean, nothing's new under the sun. I knew that not, part. Nothing. But you know what? You put your stamp on it. Marty, look, Marty took a concept. I think it's true in everything. You know, my book, Over Deliver, I have concepts in there, like basic direct marketing concepts, like RFM, recency, frequency, monetary value, uh, lifetime value, um, uh, the 40-40-20 rule of of list, offer, and creative. I don't know if, I'm not going to go into all the details. They're all in the book. But the interesting thing is that I didn't invent any of those things. However, every time that I explain it, I explain it in the context of an experience that I had in my career that and what it meant to me and what it meant to the company and what, right. how, what, what the fruits of that labor was to learn that. And what's interesting is that and and I think you know you read there are so many books. I mean, my 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 I'm, I'm piled up with books here, and there's not, as you said, there's nothing new under the sun. However, there's an interpretation from every single person of because I always say I never invented anything, but I've connected the dots on a lot of things, and therefore, if one person gets um, like a recency, frequency, monetary value, if if they read about it in my book, they never really understood it before, but they'd heard of it. And they get it because of the way I explain it to them. Now I'm cooking because that means I did my job. I did my job because I become the messenger for a very important marketing concept that they might not have gotten. And now they get it because I put it in a context that they could comprehend. And that is really what we're doing when we're, when we're, when we're in information publishing or speaking or anything. If you can be the messenger for somebody on a particular thing that you're now their go-to person for that, you didn't have to invent it. You just have to give them the right context to be able to absorb it properly and then go on and they go on and go forth and multiply in their world. And, and that's, I, th I think that's the way of the world in terms of information. Yeah, that's the power of information. Um, I, I want to make sure we don't get away from the second part of this question because I'm intrigued all the time about where people come from. And, you know, you're, you're, this is a passion of yours is sharing knowledge and bolstering people up and, and encouraging people. And so I want to know what you're like, you know, where, where do you think all this started? Where, where do you think your uh, leadership tendencies began? Or when did people start to notice that you had leadership qualities? Yeah, I you know, I used to think that, you know, early on that just because I was an extrovert that makes you a leader because you're the loudest person in the room and that's clearly not the case. You got to have you got to be able to back it up. Um and so I think that I I don't know when it was that I realized it, but I realized that um that when you when you are in a position of creating value which comes up a lot in a lot of books and a lot of public speakers and all of that. But if you're always creating value first, whether in marketing, whether it's um, in speaking, in a podcast, if you're trying to just get value out there, that to me is the ultimate. And the other piece of that is the hundred zero concept, which I actually learned in Landmark Forum years ago, which is, you know, if you can just keep on giving 100% every time with no expectation of return, the returns are end, end up being so much more. So I think that's when I realized that's what being a leader to me is. It's not to be the loudest in the room. It's not to be the smartest in the room. In fact, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room is, my, is the way I look at it. And I, I trace that quote back to Confucius, by the way, and I use it all the time. A lot, a lot of contemporary gurus claim it, but it, it went back to Confucius. Um, and so not, you know, so not being the smartest person in the room makes you the leader in terms of going into the room as a student. Cause when you're a student, you're also a teacher. And that's been, that's been the most miraculous thing in terms of my leadership style. And I didn't know if I was a leader or not a leader, never thought about it that much. But I think you, you know, you always lead by example, but you still, you know, you still need to, and, and the other big piece of this is you need to be interested and not be interesting. I mean, I can be interesting. I could tell stories. I could tell a lot of good, I, I could, I could weave a tale of marketing lore that will, you know, fascinate a lot of people. 
But that's not what it's all about. It's about being interested. And that's how you do it with your audience. You know, when you email them or you send direct mail pieces to them or you're communicating with them as a live audience, you, you have to be interested in what they want and what they need first. And in that respect, you will be interesting mm-hmm. because you'll be interesting to them. I love that Dale Carnegie quote. That's, that's like, those are words to live by, to, uh, to be interested, not interesting. Yes. Um, so uh, you brought up being a student and I, I'm, I'm actually curious, what kind of kid were you on the playground? Um, you know, like you, you already said you were a bit of an extrovert. Were you the kind of kid who took a leadership opportunity on a sports team or running for office or like all, did, did teachers then sort of see you and think, oh, you know, we'll give this to Brian. He'll take care of it. You know, what, what yeah, kind of I kid were you? I think that was the case. I mean, I wasn't on any, any uh, big varsity teams because I wasn't that good. Uh, I was a decent athlete, but not a great athlete. So I, I, but it was, it was a situation where I could, um, uh, like if I, when I was on the street with my friends, you know, I always organized and I always, you know, even with my friends later on in life, I mean, I had these 10 friends from high school and I used to say, you know, if, if I didn't make the effort to do the organization, to get them together, cause they were all kind of lame basically. But I love them. They were like brothers to me. And so um, if it would be it, that that's the hundred zero. Like I wasn't saying, okay, I'm gonna do this much and then you do this much and then we'll meet. I, I've never used the term I'll meet you halfway in my life. So I just get I want to get it done. I want to get the job done. And to get the job done, sometimes you have to put yourself out there way more than 50%, maybe up to a hundred percent, and then it happens. And that's all I wanted. I wanted it to happen. So I think it was a function of, you know, that the the ends would justify any means necessary because the ends were, in this case, getting together with my buddies a couple of times a year. And if I didn't organize it, it wouldn't happen. So I would do that. You're reminding me of a story that I'm sure I've told in this podcast, but my senior year, we had a trip from Long Island to Washington, D.C. by bus, the senior trip. And I went to an enormous high school and we were going to have 12 buses. And I asked how many people can fit on a bus? And they said 56. And I organized 55 people plus me that I knew personally to all sign up for the same bus so that the trip down would be fun for all of us and not random people. And, you know, that's the kind of thing my, my circle of friends came to expect that I would do that. And it just, Brian, happened the other day. I am, I am brand new on Clubhouse. And, you know, I actually am an Android user. So I had to go hunt down. I was gifted an iPhone 6S to check out this app. And uh, what I ended up doing, I was on for like a day. I went into two private Facebook groups that I'm part of, created a Google form so that all the people who were on could fill it out. And they'd go to have one place to go to and find each other and collaborate. Right. Because like, to me, it's like the tool is not as useful as how we use it. Exactly. Um, so, I, you know, yeah, I'm with you on the, I, I love this 100 zero. I've actually not had the opportunity to do landmark, but I've heard so many good things. I wanted to shift us a little bit into um, this, this experience where you, you left your role. Like, so having a 34 year career, first of all, is impressive enough all on its own with one company. Um, but then you made a decision or a decision was made for you. I don't know yet. And you ended up building your own company so as you were doing that, like, did you already know entrepreneurs? Did you have the skills and knowledge to do that business part? Not just the part, you know, you know, the marketing part, but like, there's always more to it. How did you, how did you sort of approach that? And what were the challenges as you made that shift in, uh, in your world? Yeah, I got to tell you, it was, it was not that, it was not that difficult because I, I grew up at Boardroom, which was an entrepreneurial company. Marty Edelston was the founder. He was the entrepreneur. I was more the intrapreneur. Um, and I grew with the company. I mean, 10 years in, I was made a partner and then I eventually had, had an equity position uh, it, and it was a family business and I was a non-family member. So, you know, I really felt like I had earned that spot as, a, as a, an equity partner in the business. But I was watching all along, you know, how Marty did it, what, he, what I thought was he did well, what I thought that I would do differently. And when I went out on my own, the, the entrepreneurial aspect was the easy part because I was already an entrepreneur. I was already an innovator. I was already doing a lot on my own in the company. So it wasn't that. And plus, 
it was a completely different business model. My, my, my job at Boardroom was basically selling $39 newsletters and book, $39 subscriptions and books to the tune of a billion dollars or more, $39 at a time. Whereas when I got into my own business, it became more of a B2B business where I was selling companies on working with me in direct marketing. They would join my mastermind. They would buy some books and things from me. But it was more of selling, you know, anywhere from, you know, uh, $1,500 to $25,000 memberships um, to a much smaller group. I mean, Boardroom had a 9 million name database of customers. Um, my company has, you know, in terms of customers, um, not just customers, I, I sell books at $125, that, not including those people, but the people who are in my groups, that's like uh, 300 people, but it's 300 people selling on their own. They're going off and doing their thing and I'm teaching them. So now I'm selling, you know, we'll say five to $25,000 at a time for them to go off and do the millions. And so it was, it's interesting because direct marketing scales everywhere. It scales if, if it's, if it's $39 product or it's $25,000 product and it's, it's just scales differently. It, but the, the elements are the same in terms of how you sell people on it. Um, you know, when I say marketing isn't everything, it's the only thing it's kind of working off the Vince Lombardi, although Vince Lombardi didn't, is somebody who set it before him, but Vince Lombardi's famous expression was winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. So I say marketing isn't everything. It's the only thing, not because I'm some hustler or because I want to rip people off and just sell them all the time. It's because nothing happens to you market something. You know, it's like, it, it's not just going to come to you automatically because you have the best product. You have to do something with it. And, you know, I always say when, it, and it came to me, that expression came to me when I was speaking in foreign countries who were way behind the United States in marketing. And they were always leery. I was the ugly American talking about selling, selling, selling. And I said, you know, it's not evil. Marketing is not evil. And so the idea is that you can, you can sell or market um, your products and services at any level you want, very aggressive to not aggressive at all, but you still have to do it. And so that was the key in terms of marketing isn't everything. It's the only thing. And everybody needs to do it at their own pace. At their, it has to be congruent with who they are in the world. And they have to be, has to be consistent with their mission and vision of what they want to be and who they want to, what they want to do. So it's very, it's a very personal decision when you're doing marketing. But if you're not doing any marketing, you're a fool. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of curious when you get started here, you're saying like, you know, you were, you were selling kind of a commodity $39 at a time and now you're selling knowledge, right? Cause you know, now it was about access to you. Not really. The $39 product was not a commodity. It was a very specific newsletters and books that were, I mean, they weren't a commodity product. Low it was price. just a low price. It's interesting that, yeah, low price, but not, not really a commodity. Cause I, I, I spend a lot of time in my mastermind groups where people don't niche down enough. And, you know, they think that, you know, it, it, the idea is you have to, if you have a commodity, you got so to, I want to actually hear about how you found those first few people, because so you have this 34 year history of all this knowledge were people already asking you to do things like masterminds before you built your own business? Like, was that already kind of in the pipeline? Cause you're like, I don't really have time. I don't have time. And now they're like, Oh, now you're, now you're time. And you're like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, it was, it, it was that, but, but the, 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 uh, the, the, the intricacies of it were kind of interesting because, um, in just a series of circumstances, uh, Marty Edelston, um, passed away in 2013. And that kind of gave me the inclination that maybe I want to, I want to move on from the company. Not that he was that involved at the end. I was, I was definitely running everything in the marketing end. And, you know, I definitely had control of, of everything that was selling anything in the company, but the kids were going to be more involved if Marty was not there anymore. And, you know, I got along with them fine, but I, I was ready to go. And what happened was it wasn't just that people were clamoring to work with me. It was that if you spend 34 years um, constantly 
looking at every relationship, going deep in every relationship. And I'm not saying I went deep in every single one, but I was not superficial with my relationships. And so I had, I didn't have a network. I hate the word networking. It's, it's the beginning of chapter 10 of my book. I hate the word networking. What I do love is creating relationship capital. And, and it's maybe just semantic for some people, but it's very meaningful to me. And it's, a, it's an expression that I got from Jay Abraham, the great marketer, and he wrote the forward to Over Deliver. And the idea of developing relationship capital, I've written about it a lot in my blog. And it's, it's so important because it's, the, it's, it's an account that you get compound interest on it all the time. It builds on itself. Um, and so when I decided to leave, so the, the circumstance actually made it even easier to go into masterminds and I, I don't say consulting. Consulting sounds like you're unemployed. So I, that's why I called myself a direct marketing educator as opposed to a consultant. But I knew I was going to do mastermind groups. It's a great model to, to do a, a one to many. And you can do many can be 30 companies. It could be 250. And I have two groups that are like that. One has 250 members and one has 30. And so um, so when, when, when Marty died in 2013, I decided in 2014 to do a tribute event to him. And because of the relationships that he had and I had over the 34 years I was there, we got everybody in direct marketing to show up for this event. It was called the Titans of Direct Response. I mean, I don't know if the people who are listening to this know these names, but, you know, Jay Abraham and um, uh, uh, Gary Bensavenga, the best living copywriter around, uh, Joe Sugarman, who did the blue blocker sunglasses, kind of invented the toll-free number. Um, uh, uh, who else did we have? We had Greg Ranker, who's, you know, Guthy Ranker, the, the infomercial folks. So that was the, that was the, um, uh, that was the event in 2014. At that event, I did an extra day, which was like a VIP day where I had like people pay to do hot seats with me. So, and it was like a little mastermind for a day. And I did, I remember I did 26 hot seats in 10 hours and that was my, it ended up that that was the first of those, of those 40 people in the room, 23 of them was my first mastermind when I left boardroom. So it was, it was, it was so, again, it wasn't easy, wow. but it was simple because it was a simple, it was a simple, um, uh, um, extension of a 34 year career of what I had done, even though I didn't do it on my own, I was doing it at boardroom. I was connecting deeply with everybody I ever worked with, everybody I ever met. And that was, that was the key um, in terms of, of having, I, 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 I left boardroom in January of 2015, September of 2015, I had a, a 23 person mastermind at $25,000 each. So I had a business right there. Yeah. It was immediate and it was great. And I still have that. Well, it sounds like you had a really amazing opportunity to do a pilot test of what would this look like? Do people respond? I mean, if you had 12 people in the room, it would have been still a great experience. It would have been 10 hours long. It would have been a shorter experience, but you would have still felt like you're adding value to those 12 people. But the fact that 40 people showed interest, that told you some information. And then clearly you stayed in touch with those 40 and more than half signed up. I mean, it, it, it's a very thoughtful way. I think for anyone listening who's thinking about making a shift from a career to a business that, you know, testing something out like you did. So, you know, more than a year before you, you officially did it, you had a lot of like clear indications that this would be a thing and people would be not just happy to take your advice, but also pay you for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a really easy, it was an easy pilot because it worked in, to the event. I didn't, I didn't solicit at the event itself. It was a boardroom event. Boardroom got all the money from the event. But then when I decided to leave, that was September of 2014. I left in January of 2015. And that's how I started my business. You know, I knew, but I knew I could have done a lot of different things. I knew I didn't want to have a big business anymore. So I knew I wanted to have something small and compact. I want to tell one thing, guys, I know your, your podcast is, has the word schmooze in it. And I'll tell you, going back to the reason why I hate the word networking, the story goes back to when I was like 28 years old. There was an article in one of the direct marketing magazines, and it was like 30 under 30, one of those. Like it was 30 guys or women under 30 years old to keep an eye on. 
So I was one of them. I was flattered, honored. And the article about me said it was entitled Strategic Schmoozer. Talk about, you know, I mean, it was like it, it repulsed me because that's not who I was. And this kind of it was important, though, because it goes back to when you say, you know, because you're hearkening back to your root, my roots and your roots of of organization and leadership and all of that. The last thing I wanted to be seen as was a schmoozer, which was, you know, patting people on the back, shaking hands with everybody. You know, uh, later on, I'd have the most Facebook friends and that would make me popular and all of that. That's not who I was. So I, I at that point, at in my late 20s, why, and then for the rest of the time I was at Boardroom and since, I've always been focused on, you know, going deep as opposed to wide. And by going deep with every relationship, I ended up going wide because you go deep with certain people and they'll take you to other people who will want you, who want to go deep with as well. You don't get as many as quickly, but I had 34 years. So, you know, that's a long enough time to, in fact, in the acknowledgements, the the hardest thing to write in my book were the acknowledgements because I had over 500 of them. Not to say that I've known every one of those 500 people intimately, but I'll tell you 300 of them I do. And so it was so important for me to acknowledge as many of them as possible. And that, that is, I guess, as you said, you know, how do you, how do you create a career out of a job kind of, and and how do you create, you know, a long-term, a long-term legacy from that, a living legacy, not, not the legacy when you're dead. I'm talking about a living legacy. And the way to do that is to constantly compound interest on your relationship capital. And you got to do it humbly. You got to do it sincerely. You can't just, you know, just pile on with people, you know, and, and that I do the same thing when I, when I list build, I mean, I have an email list that I've been blogging to. In fact, this Valentine's day was uh, seven years since I started it. And, um, it, it's, it's a slow build. I'm not looking to go to Facebook, scrape people off and throw them on my list. Cause that's not going to have the, the meaningful aspect of when I'm writing that they're going to open and read. I mean, I get, I get sometimes I, I send out the same blog post twice a week, uh, once on Sunday. And then on Friday, I send it to the people who didn't open it on Sunday with a different subject line. And with those two sends, sometimes I get close to 50% open rate. Now, open rate's not the only criteria, but the fact is people are opening, they're reading. It's a lot of value. I do sell in it, not a yeah. lot, but I sell in it. I don't do affiliates. I have, a, I have a whole program like that. And I think that, you know, how big is the list? I don't care what the size is. I mean, my, my list, my, I have two lists on two, on two, on, on two um, platforms, probably have 13,000 names. And people would say, oh, why do you have such a small list after seven years? And I said, well, it's not the size of the list. It's the, it's who's on it. Well, yeah, I totally know. And, and, and are they the right people? I mean, similar right. to you, I do the same. Uh, I post on Tuesdays and then a resend with the same subject line, actually, on Fridays. Change the subject line to the unopens. So I, I might think about that. That's, that's a curious thing. I'll test that. But mine currently are about... 35, 38 for the first one and 15 to 18 or 20 of the second. Right. So I'm, I'm breaking 50, even, even on those low numbers, I'm going to be like 35 and 14 maybe. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I'd much rather them be not just opening it, but also they hit reply. Well, like, you have, and then you have to have clicks. Oh, the key thing is engagement. Ben Settle, yeah. who's one of the best email marketers around, he had 12, I, I wrote a blog post about it too. And I, I, I talked about each one. I think he had 12 different things that are in, in many respects more important than open rates. And mm. most of them relate to engagement, like just asking them a question in the blog post and just get and, and make sure that the responses don't go into an autoresponder, that they go right, directly right. to you. That's the other thing. Yeah. If your list is too big, you can't pay attention to right. anybody. Now, you know, at some point I get so much response that I don't get to the I don't get to respond to them maybe for a week or two, but I respond to everyone because that's awesome. You know, it's, it's painful sometimes, but it's really important because I want to engage with them and it's amazing the stuff you learn. Um, and again, going back to your original question, it's marketing by walking around. It's, it's basically I'm walking around in my list. In fact, I never call it my list. I always call it my online family. 
And even when I address them, you know, you, my online family, I was a list guy at boardroom. When I started, I was the list guy at boardroom. And so, you know, lists are, lists are people too. You know, lists are not names on a piece of paper or in a computer program. They are people. And so to me, that is the most important thing when I look at a list because, and then it's a, a one list is many lists and then you can have different messages to different segments. And so that's really important too. Um, and being as personal as you can without going one-to-one all the time. And you can do it in email. Man, I really wish you actually cared about direct marketing because then we'd have a more... (laughs) (laughs) So Brian, I want to make one observation and then I want to start talking to you about a slightly different topic that you've already started touching on. I use Drip uh, as my email system uh, service provider and they, a couple of years ago, switched what might've been called subscribers before. I don't remember what it was called to people. So you click on your people section of that website to learn like who's in your list. And you know, I, it's, just, it's funny, you know, people say that the words you use, you know, don't matter that much. They matter a whole oh, of lot. Of course they do. I'll, I'll yeah. give you the best. I, I did a blog post was blog post video. I did about the word tripwire. Now that's a term in marketing where, you know, if you send somebody to a squeeze page and the thing you give away as the first, you know, the, the, the first thing they have to opt in and they get, it's a tripwire. And so the, the uh, subject line to my blog post was, why blowing up your customers is not the best idea. Like, and so, and the point is that, yeah, you can call it a tripwire if you want, but do you know what a tripwire is? You know, it's something that you, you trip on it and you explode. If you explode, you probably can't promote to them anymore because they're dead. So just in terms of what it says about how you're talking about your customers, you can get into bad habits later on about, I mean, you know, you talk, there, there are great marketers who talk about their audience as a herd. Not a bad thing to do. I don't do that. But, you know, the herd or they, that your, your best customers are your whales. You know, if, if, if it works for the content you're doing or you can put quotes around it or do something like that, that can work. But I think the words we use are just so important. And, you know, I know somebody who was selling for years. He was one of the best salesmen of a real estate course, teaching people, you know, how to flip houses and and it was not, you know, it's, it's, it's not an ugly business, but it's a business that's always um, under the microscope of, of the FTC and all the, all, all the compliance and experts in the world. So you have to be really careful. This guy, the one thing he did from day one, everybody who bought his course, everybody who came to his seminars, he always called them students. Just a little thing like that. They're not customers. They're not prospects. They're students. Now you can say, well, he's just, he's just, you know, being, being cute with that. Well, being, if, if he means it, um, and you're talking to someone who's a student, as opposed to a prospect, you're going to talk to them differently over time. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing about labeling. And you're getting me thinking about uh, uh, something related to marketing. I've never liked the word funnel. Because it makes it feel like, talk about squeeze, also squeeze pages. I don't like that either. The funnel is like people fall into it, right? Like the funnel, you have people coming in at the top and then they have nowhere to, you, you don't let them fall out and keep them in the funnel, keep them in the funnel. And it, and it really does make me think of that, you know, you know, how we herd cattle into the pen to right. slaughter, right? Let me give you, let me give I, you. I'll, I'm just like finish this thought. I love the engagement ladder. Like I'm thinking I want to engage them up. So it's my job to exactly. keep attracting them up to the next step, up to the next step, up to the next step. And it's, it's effort on my part to engage with them so that they want to take the effort to come meet me. They're not falling into what I'm doing. They exactly. are, they're actively coming in. And I, I don't know, it's just like a different, it's the same end result in some ways in the sense that like you're trying to get in front of a, the right people. But I think language in that sense really does matter. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, another way to look at it. I think you'll like this a lot. I call it fishing without bait. So if you, if you are on a lake, and fish are in the water. They're your prospects, your students, your online, potential online family, whatever they are, right? Let's say they are your, your list, your online family, and they're swimming around. You're not selling to them every time. And so you can go out there in the boat, in your boat, and you can take your, your fishing pole, a hook, nice piece of bait, which would be the tripwire, the whatever. You throw it in the water, you reel them in, and you get them into a funnel, and you start selling them stuff and they can't get out. 
or, you know, they get constant emailing and all that. It's not a bad way to sell and it's not a bad thing, which you said too. However, I, I go for this and I'm sure you do too. I fish without bait. I basically say, okay, instead of throwing a hook in the water, I, I just try to spotlight on the water. So you shine the spotlight and the spotlight is your content, is your value, is whatever you can do. It can be a sales message. It's not, you know, selling is not evil, but so you can just, you shine the spotlight. And then what they do is, is that over time, the fish just jump in the boat. And when they jump in the boat, if they jumped in the boat completely on their own free will, which kind of what you were hinting at, you don't have to put them in a funnel. All you have to do is then engage with them, find out what they want, what they need. Then you let them know what you've got, you know? And the whole idea is that it's basically saying to your audience, um, I'm here all the time. I'm here. Anytime you need me, come see me. You know, it doesn't have to be today. It can be tomorrow. It can be next week. But the problem with funnels and online marketing in general is that everybody's a little impatient. And again, it works. I understand it works. Scarcity works. Time clocks work on, on order. It all works. It all works because human beings are human beings. Human nature hasn't changed. Um, mm -hmm. But there are different ways to do it. I always say, you know, I'd rather leave some money on the table and get the money for the lifetime. That's why the, my, the subtitle of my book was so important to me. You know, build a business for a lifetime playing the long game in direct response marketing. The long game is not reel them in, get them in a funnel, get a sale, get another sale, get another sale, ascend them, descend them, whatever, um, pop up here, pop up there. Again, all legitimate marketing techniques. I am not going to sit here and say, I'm not grandpa at the picnic here saying, you can't do that, you young whippersnappers. You need to really respect your, your students and your customers and your online family. I'm not going to sit and lecture to anybody. It's not going to work. And I don't want to because they're making a lot of money that way. It's just not my model. It's not what I want to do. And so the people that who are in my masterminds, who subscribe to my blog, they take my philosophy and they put their own spin on it. Maybe, you know, and, and you know what, the thing about funnels, it's not a bad word, but it, it, it does connotate what you said. It, it locks them in to this, to this thing. And then to get them into another funnel would be like, you know, another, um, another like selling message to get them in and out. And I mean, I, I, I thought about my business in the 1980s, you know, we, we did a direct mail for a subscription. They bought the subscription. Then we sold them a book. They bought a book. We sold them another book. I guess that's a funnel, but it was done. <laughs> right. No, piecemeal. But, yeah, I think that the difference is how much agency the prospect has is, is different, right? Yeah, like, that's if, true. If you have a funnel, if, if it's a funnel, then, then you really are kind of like moving them through something. And if, if it's an engagement ladder or they are jumping into your boat, then you better be doing the right thing for them to even find you and care about you and want to be part of your work. Exactly. exactly. They don't just fall into it. Right. Um, this has been really powerful. And, and I'm also grateful to hear someone with your history of marketing talking like this, because I think that there are more examples of people selling you the quick fix, you know, here, do these three webinars, sell the 10 minutes left, you know, no more spots, you know, really kind of the same way there's bad rap for like sales. You know, the reason people are so afraid of sales is because, you know, unfortunately they more, that's more of what they've heard is the bad sell stories, not the good ones. Cause the good ones are relationships that don't feel like sales. So they don't even know to name it as sales because they got their can, needs met. And they can use the same format. You know, you can do, you know, a product launch formula kind of launch with three pre-launch videos, all content, all value, all everything. Then you open your cart, you have a, you have a deadline on it. All of that, that's what that's how you sell. It's but value, the thing right. is, it's value added. And you know what? My my criteria is if someone, if I do a launch for one of my mastermind groups, and I do, I do them, and I do three videos, and then the fourth video is the sales video. And if someone doesn't buy, and yet they if they watch the first three videos, they got tremendous value that they could take to the bank. I did my job. I did my job. And having that satisfaction in that really makes it makes makes selling a joy because then yeah. when they do buy 
you know they bought through that system of really engaging with you. And that's because the thing is, people talk about cold traffic all the time. You have to market to cold traffic, get get that first, you know, and and and, and so that's and it's the sexy part of marketing, right? You're going to someone who doesn't know you, never heard of you, and you're gonna get that first sale. It's it's it, it is the big endorphin rush for marketers. However, I, my attitude is you go after cold traffic with the first order with the second order in mind. And not to say that you're going to hit them with a funnel right away. You're not going to hit them with the second and third offer right away, but you know where you want them to go. If they engage with you, that's a much better, not as sexy because I'm looking at the renewals to me at boardroom. When we had our newsletter, bottom line, personal, it was the largest subscription newsletter, consumer newsletter in the country. It wasn't a magazine. It was a newsletter, no advertising. We got it up to a million subscribers at one point. So it had to really exist on its circulation and, and be people paying for the subscription. And when I when I used to sit with Marty and look at our P&Ls for the company, it was always about the renewals. It was you had to get new orders, true. You can't get renewals without a first order, but it was always about the renewal income. Because Absolutely. if you got the right person in on the first, and you've talked about it already, you get the mm-hmm. right person in. Why? I mean, we used to get, we used to do very heavy duty sales, you know, aggressive sales on the first order. That was a gimmick. And those people would renew it, we'll say 18%. Whereas the ones who came in with a, a book log of 64 pages, this is direct mail, but 64 pages of exhilarating content, and then they subscribe, those people renewed at like 40%. And then yeah. they renew, and then the second year, they'd renew mm-hmm. it like 60%. And by the time you had them for three years, they were renewing at 70 and 80%. And all the money, the real dollars in the company, because you don't have to spend as much on renewals. Right, renewing. And so they had the margin and all of the profit in the company was in the renewals. And yeah. I remember Marty said to me one day, you know what business we're in, Brian? Because we had business. books and we had newsletters and all this <laughs> stuff. He goes, we're in the business of bottom line personal renewals. Yeah. And if you think that way, you can still do cold traffic and do front end marketing very well. But if you are focused, totally focused on the long-term value, the lifetime value of a customer, all of the values of recency, frequency, and monetary value, that's how, that's how you build a business for the long-term. You know, I, because I, we've been talking a lot about what you have done. I, I want to take you a year from now. And if you were to be sharing with me, all of your successes from the previous year, what, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in your year ahead as we wrap up this conversation? You know, I think I want, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a place where I want to reach more marketers, especially younger ones. And look, I'm, I'm of a different generation. I mean, I'm 62 years old. So some people would think I'm over the hill. I'm not because I paid attention all along. So I become a bridge that connects the, fundamentals of direct marketing of the past to what state of the art today. And the most rewarding thing for me is as I brought more people into my mastermind, my lower end mastermind, they're in their twenties and thirties and having, so I guess what I'd love to have, I have 250 people in my Titans accelerator mastermind, which is my 15, uh, my $2,000 a year mastermind, low price. If I could double that, and double it, and then and then so I've had two fifty. I get it to five hundred, and of the new two fifty, at least one hundred twenty five of them are under thirty. That would be the best because now I am educating a new generation of direct marketers with the right fundamentals, with the right state of the art. Because I don't know all the state of the art, but I bring in speakers to do that because I'm connected. I have a relationship capital. I, I'm I'm close with a lot of the best marketers, online marketers today. They all come speak at my masterminds. So I can get them to get them the education they need. They get the fundamentals from me. They get some of the state of the art from me, but they get more of the state of the art from the people that I'm connected to. And if I have a double the amount, I can double my impact. And especially if they're under 30 with, you know, like another... 50 years to 40 years to go, boy, that, that would be a wonderful living legacy. I guess when I'm dead, it's a good dead legacy too, but I I like to think of my living legacy of 
So you said a year from now and a year from now, hopefully I'll still be alive and hopefully I'll have that many more people and more younger people that will, that will kind of not subscribe to me, but at least connect with me on that level that we've been talking about. I mean, you know, I'm sure you connect really well with 20 and 30 year olds because of your attitude towards, you know, I think what you, you didn't call, you didn't call fishing without bait, but you called it, you know, the relationship marketing and value added marketing and not funnels all the time. And that's the kind of marketing that I want to teach. They can do anything else within that. They can still do funnels. They can do launches. They can do scarcity plays. They can do time clocks. They can do all of that. But if it's coming from the heart and I'll make sure it does, if they're in my groups, yeah, that's an impact that, that would be really, um, Look, if you have good impact, I've got decent impact now. If I can double it, that would be wonderful. Well, I can't wait to celebrate that with you. That sounds amazing. Thank you. How can people find you and follow your work, Brian? So if you uh, don't want to spend any money at all and all you want is a freebie and just want to get in my world, just go to briankurtz.net, www.briankurtz.net. There's a, not a tripwire, but a, a and it's, it's not a squeeze, but it's my website. But my website is an opt-in page where you get an interview that I've done with Perry Marshall, another titan of direct response, um, on the three biggest successes of my career. It's a really good interview, I think. Um, and you get the interview if you opt in, and then you'll get my blog post every Sunday. If you don't open it, you'll get it on Friday with a different subject line. Um, and I do sell great materials. I, I have uh, exclusive rights to Gene Schwartz's classic books, Breakthrough Advertising, and the Brilliance Breakthrough. I've developed swipe files of some of the best copywriters who've ever lived, Jim Rutz and Bill Jamie. And so there's a lot of good stuff being on the list and it's all educational stuff, no affiliates, no nothing like that. Um, I don't sell other people's stuff unless it's fantastic and I don't take a commission. Um, so, and, I, and if I do take a commission, it goes right to charity. So that's like the, mo the model that I use. Awesome. Now, if you, a better way to get on my list is to buy my book, Over Deliver, but buy it at overdeliverbook.com, www.overdeliverbook.com. On that site, you'll get to that site and it's a three-step approach. It'll say, you know, first buy the book at one of these sites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You go off and buy the book, opens up a new window, come back to the site, overdeliverbook.com. You put your order number in, you're opting into my list, but you're also getting an incredible, the bonuses on that page some of them are priceless. I mean, there are, it's thousands of dollars worth of stuff for buying a $27 book, not maybe $17 book. I don't even know what my book's costing on Amazon these days, but you get the book, the book is decent, but the bonuses are fantastic. And they're all for my mentors, Jay Abraham, Gary Bensavenga, Gordon Grossman, who founded the Reader's Digest, who's the uh, architect of the Reader's Digest, Dick Benson, direct mail genius. I have PDFs of their, their out of print books. I've got Jay Abraham, I've got 19 keynote speeches that he's given on that site. Everything is at overdeliverbook.com. And it's sort of like, you know, if you do a book called Overdeliver, you got to overdeliver on the bonuses. So I did that. And it also gets them on my list. They can stay in my world. And, um, you know, someday you might want to, they might want to join my mastermind. If you don't, I'll keep shining the spotlight. You can stay in the lake as long as you want. That's all. I love all this. And uh, it is true. If you're going to call a book over deliver, then you, then you have to follow through on that. Hey, we're also gonna have all those links plus uh, to your LinkedIn and to all your books um, all on the website at ontheschmooze.com. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great conversation. Oh, thanks, Robbie, very much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that entry with Brian. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 236. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources of today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Also, if you're on Clubhouse, find me at Robbie Samuels and click on the bell in my profile so you're notified when I'm speaking in a room. If you enjoy this episode with Brian, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. 
Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions and get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.